We good? We good? We good? Okay, cool. So um, yesterday, we laid out what the Bible has to say about imagination, what imagination is. Um, Today, we're going to look at how we as Christians can use imagination to engage post-Christian culture, the culture that is currently around us now. Uh, since you're here this morning, I'm going to assume that you all, we are agreed that the world is something we are to engage, that we are to be missional, we are to be engaged with the world, engaged with culture, some of that. And if you don't agree, then save that for Q&A, if we have time for Q&A. Um, I'll just say this. There is a phrase that evangelicals love, and that is, we are in but not of the world. That comes from John 17, verses 14 through 18. And, uh, and it's kind of right and kind of wrong. It's right in that we are not to be of the world. We are to have a different first love, different motivations. Um, but it's kind of wrong in that we're not just supposed to be in the world as if we're like, well, I'm here in this dark world that's going to hell, and I guess I'll just stiff upper lip. That's a British thing, right? Stiff upper lip it until I die and go to heaven. But uh, no, 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 no. We are not in the world. Jesus says explicitly, we have been sent into the world, which is a far more dynamic. And why? So, so we're to be, we're, we're to engage this culture. We, we, God, you are here in this culture at this time because God placed you specifically there. And he has something for you to do. Um, why has he placed us here? Because we are to love and serve the people around us. And not just as individuals, but their culture too. The culture that we share. The culture that is their home and our home. We're to make it better. We're to bring shalom. So let us consider it settled. Christians are called to engage culture. The next question then is obviously, how? How are we to engage culture? Um, how are we specifically to engage a culture that is post-Christian? One might say uh, inoculated or, dare I say, vaccinated against the gospel through past exposure. Um, Christians typically have tended towards two options, neither of which I think are helpful. The first is politics and power to try to coerce a change in the culture to make it uh, more Christ-honoring. Is, that is essentially culture warring. And I would argue that uh, this is not the right way to go, that the mess that we see today in the United States is a direct result of this type of cultural engagement. Um, <clears throat> it, it creates resentment. It creates division, polarization in society. And more than that, it invites certain forms of corruption and compromise into the church uh, as ends begin to justify means. You know, yes, he's a fool. He might even be a wicked fool, but he's our wicked fool, and he's going to get done what we want to get done. That is not a great way to be. 
That is not the way to reflect our Lord. Um, so, look, I, I want to say politics has its place, and I think that Christians ought to be represented in politics, have a voice. But uh, we need to be very careful how we do politics, loving our enemies and so forth. And I would say um, when, when politics becomes weaponized in the service of the culture war, or better, when the faith becomes weaponized in the service of politics, that leads to political ideology. That is not a good option. A second option is to create a safe space, a Christian bubble, that, uh, where you and your kids will be safe and sound from the evil outside world. Um, this, I, I would say that's not a good idea because this bunker mentality, which is what it is, implicitly denies the call of Christ for us to go out into the world. Um, it cuts off engagement with the world in order to preserve our own safety or purity or holiness or whatever. So again, building strong intentional communities that deepen the roots of faith and raise up kids right, that's all good stuff, but not when it creates safe spaces that keep us blissfully or anxiously separated from the world around us. That is uh, defaulting on the call that God has placed on us, that Jesus has called us into. So neither of those two options, I would say, are really biblically or God-honoring, and neither of them is really effective because neither, uh, neither really works in the long run because neither engages seriously what I call the imaginary landscape. The imaginary landscape is the desires and hopes and dreams, and anxieties, and fears that lie back of cultural creativity, that a, a collective people share. And it's by engaging that that you see cultural change over the long term. <clears throat> so I would like to propose a third path, another path, one that engages the collective imagination without either political coercion or withdrawing into Christian bubbles. Uh, and that is using the imagination for cultural engagement, or what I like to call planting oases. And allow me to illustrate this path by telling you a parable called the oasis that was really a portal to another universe. <laughs> so it goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a traveler who, lived, who habitually trekked throughout a dry and hostile land, it didn't bother him too much, for it was all he knew. One day, he saw in the distance a patch of, gr of greenery. That much color in a land of unbroken dust brown enticed him, and he set out for it. As he drew closer, the patch of green revealed more detail to him. This was a place of tall trees, lush undergrowth, and wildflowers. He entered into the shade and found there... At the center of the oasis, a still pool of crystal clear water. But he found that he was not alone, for there was a man across the pool from him staring intently at the bottom of the pool. The traveler inquired why the man was staring so. Perhaps he had seen a fish. No, the man replied, no fish, something more remarkable. See for yourself. The traveler stared intently and saw something glimmering, 
at the bottom of the pool. It might have just been the shimmering sunlight refracted onto the rocks below, but no, it was something more. He couldn't see it too well, but he found the light mesmerizing. It entranced him in a way that he found he could not easily put into words. He cautiously asked the man across the pool about the glimmering light, what he thought it was, and they talked about it until the sky grew dark and it was time for the traveler to go home. But he was so intrigued that he came back the next day both to gaze into the pool and to continue his conversation with the stranger. The stranger had brought food. And so they shared a meal together as they continued talking and sharing ideas and theories about the mysterious light at the bottom of the pool. The traveler resolved to return again the next day. And so he did. This became his habit for some time. And all the while, the light at the bottom of the pool came more and more into focus as if someone were adjusting a hidden lens. Whole cities full of light and life began to take shape before his unbelieving eyes. The traveler knew it was impossible, for cities do not reside at the bottom of ordinary pools. Nevertheless, he continued to study the image. He sensed in it a piercing beauty that entranced and drew him magnetically almost more than he could bear. He loved his time gazing into the pool, and yet he felt a profound sadness as well, for the light stirred in him deep grief as well as deep gladness. It became increasingly obvious that this was no ordinary pool. It was, rather, a doorway to another world, another way of being. It also became apparent that the man who had been a stranger and was now his friend had, in effect, become his guide. It was only a matter of time before the traveler would take the plunge to the bottom of the pool to begin the most improbable, miraculous journey he could have ever imagined. That is what I mean by planting oases. Oases are cultural works that open up breathable spaces that creatively challenge both Christian and non-Christian imaginations to see differently, question assumptions, provoke conversations, a space for building relationships, what a friend of mine, Caleb Woodbridge, who did a wonderful thing yesterday, calls imaginative hospitality. Please note what I do not mean. I do not mean building the Christian bubble, building safe spaces and creating works that appeal primarily to a Christian audience. I'm not saying anything against worship songs. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something other. I'm talking about the public aesthetic witness of the church. Uh, it's about... It's, so I would say... That is not about creating an alternative Christian subculture. It should rather be about becoming part of the broader cultural conversation in a way that both invites Christians and non-Christians in uh, to join in. It is about engaging the imaginary landscape, the shared hopes, dreams, fears, anxieties, and desires of post-Christian culture so that they can see the gospel as good news as good and beautiful. I would like to see the church gain a better understanding of the imagination and start building networks of oases, creating support networks for the creatives who can do this kind of work well. 
In this way, we take a positive step, I believe, away from the culture wars and away from a sheltered distance from the world. And we begin to instead speak into our culture life and peace. There's a lot of overlap between what I'm proposing and what artist Makoto Fujimura calls culture care. That is, instead of envisioning our culture as a battleground to be fought over, we see it as a garden to be cared for. And in the book, he tells the story of Koyu Abe, a Japanese Buddhist monk who lived near the Fukushima nuclear power plant. And if you remember, it got hit by a a tsunami and spilled a lot of radioactive waste into the soil in the area. So Abe collected millions of sunflower seeds and handed them out to the residents who planted them. Why? Because sunflowers soak up radiation from the soil and store it in the plant heads, in the flowers. And so people who live in that area have been planting these seeds year after year after year after decades, hoping that one day their soil will become safe enough for them to plant gardens that they can eat the produce from. And Fujimura argues that Christians, through their creative efforts, can do something similar. Our creative efforts can serve to renew the cultural landscape, uh, removing toxic conflict, and life-killing patterns that have poisoned our common culture for too long. And we do that through the imagination and by planting oases. So we need to ask, what is the imagination? And the short answer, and the only answer we'll have time for, because we kind of dealt with this yesterday, is that imagination is a lens through which we perceive the world and a lens from which we create new things in the world. It is a type of metaphorizing, or what we called the eyes of the heart, from Ephesians 1.18. These two aspects of the imagination, perception and cultural creativity, bleed into each other and shape one another. And that is precisely why Uh, This is precisely what makes creative cultural engagement so critical, and this is why defaulting on our aesthetic witness by producing bad, cheesy, propaganda, kitschy culture is so deeply damaging. That is why the church needs to get serious about planting oases, spaces that challenge and refresh both Christian and non-Christian imaginations, providing a space for authentic meeting of minds. Because when we plant oases, or better, networks of oases, we can begin to engage the collective eyes of the heart, the shared imaginary landscape of post-Christian culture. So, uh, next, next topic. What makes the Christian imagination distinctive? And more, what sorts of Christian imaginations can do this sort of work well? And I would argue, what, what, are, what sorts of Christian imaginations are best suited for planting oases? Uh, these creative works that both invite both Christian and non-Christian in to be challenged and encouraged and refreshed. And I would want to propose that the Christian imagination that resonates best in a culture of unbelief consists of a characteristic tension and a characteristic balance 
both of which must be maintained. One I call brightness control, the other I call volume control. Brightness control means allowing the eyes of our heart, uh, our imaginations, to be shaped by two fundamental realities of the Christian faith, the thing upon which history turns. One is the cross. The cross is an apt symbol for the twisted darkness of the world and the darkness that still dwells within our own hearts. Having a cross-shaped imagination means not papering over the disturbing aspects of our world with like a happy face sticker. It means allowing ourselves to see and to feel the distortion, the damage, the death that sin has wrought in the world and being moved to compassion the way Christ was. It means owning up to the distortion and death that still dwells in our own heart and being moved to humility because that is what drove Christ to the cross. It means seeing, hearing, and feeling, and giving expression to the darkness of the world within and without. The empty tomb is the other thing that needs to be kept in tension. And an empty tomb-shaped imagination means that although the world is dark, it is not only dark. God, through Christ, broke the spine of death, broke the power of sin. And it means that there is hope for us all. Having an imagination-shaped, uh, an empty tomb-shaped imagination means seeing past the death and the darkness and distortion to the way in which God is moving in the world and moving in us. And how all of that movement has a momentum an unstoppable momentum towards the new creation. It means seeing everything and everyone through the lens of our unshakable hope. So the faithful Christian imagination, I would argue, sees everything through both perspectives simultaneously, like seeing through the two lenses of a pair of glasses. We must hold both of these together in tension. We must be able to see the world as dark and sin-twisted and full of redemptive hope and promise. Put the cross, uh, that, that tension may seem paradoxical, but it is absolutely vital to anything we want to say as Christians within a post-Christian context. Put the cross and the empty tomb together, and you have a way of seeing the world that is mournful without despair, joyful without naivete, triumphant without triumphalism, in short, you have a, a, a genuinely Christian seeing as for everything. So the first area, brightness control, has to do with maintaining this tension between darkness and light. The second has to do with maintaining a balance. How explicit are we in our cultural works about our Christian commitments? And I would say that if we want our culture to be uh, accessible to non-Christians, then we need to maintain a balance between what I call shouting and mumbling, uh, between beating people over the head with our, the Bible or our Christian commitments and 
kind of mumbling incoherently, being like a chameleon and blending into the secular culture or being like a turtle and pulling anything we think might offend into our shells so as not to create offense. Um, Instead of preaching and shouting through our cultural works or mumbling incoherently, rather let our artworks whisper, resonate on a gospel wavelength with the audience, sneak around the back door of their minds, use indirection rather than preaching the gospel. Um, Be indirect, that is to create an imaginary world within which the gospel may make sense, will make sense, um, where the gospel permeates the fabric and texture of that imaginary world without having to say it in so many words. Give room for exploration. By keeping in mind this tension between the darkness and distortion of the cross and the light and hope we have in the empty tomb, and by balancing between shouting and mumbling, we can create communities that foster Christian imaginations and creative cultural engagement that uh, create oases, Uh, these imaginative spaces that engage both Christian and non-Christian imaginations, that challenge the complacent, refresh the weary, question assumptions, create conversation, create relationships. Um, This kind of imagination is not common in Christian creative circles, but it does occur, and I'm happy to say it's occurring more and more, and I've been very... uh, moved and happy to see what's going on at KU. Um, There's just really cool stuff going on. So, it is 9.55. Do I want to? Yes, I'm going to. Um, I'm going to... One other thing that I think it's important for the church to understand is art. And my North Star when it comes to uh, understanding art is a Canadian Christian philosopher by the name of Calvin Seerfeld. And he gives a really nice definition. Art is an object or event conceived and structured by human design to be perceived by our senses and characterized by an imaginative and allusive finish that affords the piece its own independent identity. And you're like, whoa? And I would say, hold on, let's break it down. We can't say everything about this, but here are some points, some takeaways. Number one, Art is sensual. It is made for the senses. It is made to be felt and seen and, and touched and, and heard, not just to be thought about. Even complicated novels that are all intellectual and stuff, they gain their power by creating an imaginary world that appeals to the senses, and what happens in those worlds kind of hits you in the gut and makes you go, oh, I really liked that character. And then... You know, it's, it's something that you feel here, not just here. Don't make mindless art, but don't make effete, bodiless art either. Um, art is for people dwelling in bodies, right? Bodies are good. Creation is good. Uh, number two, art is allusive. Um, he, he says that art has an imaginative finish uh, and an allusive finish. That is, a piece of art is different from a sign on a restaurant that's like a neon sign flashing, Eddie Joe's, Eddie Joe's, Eddie Joe's. That's communicating, right, but not in an artistic manner. It's very direct. It's very artless. 
What art does instead is imaginative. It creates these imaginary worlds for us to explore in. It gestures beyond itself to larger and deeper themes. Art always means more than it outright says. It, um, this is, and in so doing, it mimics creation. This is what uh, theologians call general revelation. All of, all of nature gestures towards God. All of art uses nature to gesture beyond itself towards other themes. Whether it's, uh, it, it sort of crystallizes and gestures. That's the nature of art, whether it's Christian or non-Christian. Third, this imaginative and allusive texture of art affords the art piece, its own independent uh, identity. That is, Seerfeld is is careful to guard the autonomy of art beyond whatever uses we may put it to. A piece of art stands or falls on its own artistic merits. To say that it must evangelize if it's going to be valid art is akin to saying uh, a painting isn't really valid art unless it sells its message. And how different is that than selling pantyhose or Cumberland sausages or whatever? Um, it, 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 eventually, it, it, in essence, prostitutes art. Art has to do this thing. And that ain't art. Um, the value of art is not determined by how useful it is. It may be useful... Art may be worshipful, but it's not its worshipfulness that makes it art. Do you see the difference? It's subtle, but it's really important. Um, All right, fourth. I'm sorry. So, what does art do? Um, Art is this designed, sensual, imaginative, allusive thing that has its own creative identity, its own artistic merit. What does it do? Why is there art in God's world? Is it simply a luxury item? Because after all, we do not starve and die if we don't get art the way we do if we don't get food, for example. And the answer is that art is part of what it means to be fully human in God's world. This is why there is no culture in the world that has no, that has, uh, no artistic expression going on within it. Every culture has something artistic. Even North Korea, glory to the glorious Kim, painted, right? Uh, Art of all kinds, then, feeds, refines, and reforms imaginations in different directions. Art brings encouragement and escape and entertainment and questions, and challenges, and wonder, and glory to those who partake in it. Art crystallizes and focuses our shared human experience. Art expands our imaginative boundaries. It helps us live past our own little worlds. Uh, It helps us empathize and understand one another. It helps us live in a big world that is inhabited by other human beings, or conversely, It can shrink our worlds and help us demonize and reject other people who bear the image of God. Art, in its own way, tells the truth about God, or it deceives us and helps us believe the lie. And art does all of this in a way that gets under our skin, goes around the back door of our minds, seeping into our very dreams and desires. 
Art is powerful. And that is why it ought not to be ignored or marginalized by the church. Not if the church wishes to develop faithful imaginations. So, let me sum up what we've gone over. I suggested a path for engaging post-Christian culture that causes neither the cultural resentment and backlash that culture warring does, nor abandons our calling in order to retreat into the Christian bubble. Rather, we pursue a Christian imagination, that is, a seeing as that shapes how we see reality and creates alternative realities through cultural works, which in turn create worlds for us to explore. Creative engagement is how we can plant oases, these creative works that open up spaces that challenge and refresh and transform both Christian and non-Christian imaginations. To plant oases, we need imaginations that respect and explore the tension between the cross and the empty tomb. Uh, And we need to create works that find a balance that resonates rather than shouts or mumbles. And in order to achieve this, we need an understanding of the nature of art and what it's good for. All right, that's a lot of stuff. Very, very quickly, if you want to go deeper, uh, Ruth, Naomi Floyd, and I wrote a book called Imagination Manifesto, which explores these themes in an accessible way. If you want to take the really deep dive, then you have to go from the 140-page book to the 400-page book, which I wrote and spent a lot of time on. And I, I was going to say, and you can check out that book at 10 of those, but they only brought two copies, so I'm going to call them from now on two of those. <laughs> so... Um, They what? They still have Imagination Manifesto. Oh, and if you want to read uh, an excerpt from each of these books, check out the website that I labored long and hard to kind of arrange uh, called tedturno.com. Okay, so before we open up to questions, I want to give you some, uh, some, no, don't save, some concrete examples of what this looks like when it's done well. Um, that'll, that'll help. So, I hope this works. Okay. Yes, okay. So, the first example I want to show you is from a band from California called, uh, called Half-Life. How many people have heard of Half-Life? Nobody. That's what I thought. Okay, so, listen. These guys, they're called Half-Life because of a theological commitment. They don't say it in these words, but what they, what they really mean is, uh, in this world, we are half alive. This is the already not yet. Their first or second album was called Now Not Yet. If you guys know any theology, already we reign with Christ. We are not yet free of sin, right? All of that, all of that Pauline stuff, that's in their name, like, this is a band that, that has Christian commitments, but it does not record on a Christian label. It does not record at Christian things. Where do, or they don't perform at Christian festivals and stuff like that. Where do they perform? We saw them at Prague's Meat Factory, which is sort of an art space uh, 
concert venue, and they put on a heck of a show, and it was packed, and it was packed with, remember, Prague, atheist capital of the world? Um, it was packed with people who I'm guessing weren't from the youth group, college students who had memorized every line and were like, yeah, and they were just into it. And uh, so anyway, um, so let, let, me sh- let me share with you uh, one of their songs that is an absolute banger. Is that how you say? Um, called, uh, called High Up. I have been looking at the mountains higher. Now, what's going on in that song? There's a lot going on in this song. But first of all, I want you to understand the tension between dark and light. It is a super optimistic song, right? You get that. Uh, first of all, I want to say sound design is off the chain. Just bonkers, bonkers songwriting. But um, how does the song, where does the song start out? He starts talking about behind my back or behind your back a cold surprise in favor of the third degree. I don't know if you guys understand or are familiar with American jurisprudence. That's talking about murder, right? And what is he talking about? He's talking about the way he can lash out. It's third-degree murder is you meant to kill, but you didn't really plan it out. Right? It, was a, it was a rash act, but intention there, so it's not just manslaughter. And he's saying, that's what I did with my mouth to somebody I cared about. No, I won't defend the killer in me. What I wanted to couldn't die. And I know you know that what that feels like. If you watch this on YouTube, every time he says you, it's capitalized. Not in the lyric video I showed there, but it's enough to make you go, hmm, who's, who's he talking to? Likely not a girlfriend, right? And, and, uh, and he, he talks about, uh, you know, when you look at me, I'm lifted high up. He's not just talking about mountaintop experience. He's referencing the Aaronic blessing. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. And we know that higher than my rain clouds, this is somebody who deals with depression on a regular basis. And he gets lifted out of that. And there's all sorts of stuff going on in the music that there's the chord progression literally climbs. Dun, dun, dun higher than my rain clouds. And it just keeps going up and up. And then at that end part where he has this, these kind of things that are breaking through, there's real, relatively silent, and then pulls back. All of this is suggestive of God breaks through in a way that doesn't hit people over the head, but, sa- but owns their own distortion and says, but there's hope. Now you could say, oh, that's far too subtle. He's being far too clever. Let me... Um, let me play uh, another one that's off of Now Not Yet. And let me see if I can... Is my cursor over there? I can't see anything. There we go. Yay. All right, this is one, uh, uh, an earlier song off of either their first or second album uh, called Creature.
I mean, that amount of glory does sound reasonably glorious. <laughs> That's pretty explicit. When Jesus Christ is on the throne, they are not burying their Christian commitments, but they're not blaring them either. And, and this whole song is about the tension between the darkness and the light that runs through every human heart. That, that, but that there is a momentum towards glory, even though there is struggle to be had. Right? This is, and every kid who is at that concert has has like listened to every song on youtube and memorized the lyrics and knows that they these are christians operating in the public space in a post-christian culture and people love it we went to we went to the the um the concert for like 550 crowns which is 30 bucks the next time they come to prague it will not be 550 crowns. We might not be able to afford the tickets because they are on a trajectory, a really positive trajectory. Um, let me move to a different, uh, a different example, one that is very different texturally. Um, um, before, before you show this, how many people have heard of That Dragon Cancer? Okay. Let me set this up. This is a, an indie game that came out in 2016. I was privileged to interview the um, creators, and that became a chapter in the big book. Um, Ryan and Amy Green are a, Christian, a very committed Christian couple. They, have, they had four boys, the youngest of whom was born with, uh, with a, a rare brain cancer that gave him severe developmental delays, affected his speech. And so he, he, he didn't grow like his brothers did. And then the tumors started growing and threatening his life. And Amy, being from a charismatic background, said, ooh, God's going to do a miracle and save our child. And Ryan, who was a computer programmer working for a med tech company at the time, uh, doing dialysis machines, uh, she and he agreed that they would form their own computer game studio, game development studio, called Numinous Games. And, uh, and this game was going to be a big testimony to God saving Joel, God saving Joel's life and making the cancer go away. And then God didn't, and the game became about something else. The game became a way of a monument to Joel and the joy he gave them, but also how is it possible to find hope when death comes at you and the ones you love? This is a, uh, from a genre of games called, um, well, what Josh Larson, who's also part of the studio, calls ungames, but uh, it's more commonly known as empathy games. That is, you walk in the shoes of somebody else to understand their experience. This is an empathy game in which you walk and look, it's, a, it's a, an indie game, so it's not got photorealistic graphics or anything like that. It's a lot of polygons and a lot of big shapes. But um, the thing that indie games excel at is the writing, the gameplay, and in this case, the music 
And the voices you hear are Joel's voice, Ryan's voice, Amy's voice. Everybody is real. You're walking through this. It's really happening. Um, and it is, I, I'm going to tell you the truth. It's fun to play, but bring a box of tissues. Um, I'm going to play the trailer and then I'll talk about it a little bit more. Um, this game, sorry, it's Godzilla. Um, so this game won all sorts of awards in a space, a creative space where Christianity is generally not well liked. Um, and the reason is because they presented in a way that drew you in, did not preach at you. They are not like, they're very explicit about their Christian commitments, but they're inviting you to walk beside them and see what life looks like through Christian eyes when you're battling, uh, when, when you're battling the worst. Uh, Ryan used a phrase that I found incredibly suggestive. He called, it, he called this creative process becoming transparent. It costs the artist a lot to do this. But the impact this game has had, this game you guys have never heard of, has been within the gaming community immense. There is not, a, there is not anybody who's into indie games who does not know this game. It has won all sorts of awards, and it has opened up all sorts of doors. I asked Ryan if, um, if he had any conversations stemming from the gameplay with non-Christians, and he said, yeah, there was this one man, a uh, young man, about 19 years old in Norway. And uh, he came up to him after he gave some speech accepting another award for the game. And uh, the kid said, uh, I make games out of resentment. You make games out of love. How's that happen?" Sorry. And Ryan was able to share with him how he loved his son. Like this kid had tons of resentment against his father. And he made this game from this angry, resentful place. Because he, he, because he just hated his father. And, and Ryan was able to say... No, I love Joel, and this game is about a father's love. And he was able to get this kid to contemplate the love of the father for people who are not in a good space, for people who need it. Um, and I have seen, you guys know who PewDiePie is? Any of you YouTube Gen Z Zoomer types know PewDiePie? PewDiePie is the most obnoxious YouTuber, tremendously popular. Um, and PewDiePie did a gameplay of this, and PewDiePie was crying buckets. It broke him. 
So please notice the three things I've showed you. They are not nice music, right? There's that passage in, in Creature that is just kind of, what is going on? And it's all this turmoil. And, uh, and, and Half Alive hits hard, and that's what I love about them. And this game is brutal and fun to play, but brutal. Like the, the spiky things you remember seeing, the baby floating with the balloons through the spiky things. Those things represent cancer, and that's a little mini game within the game. Oh, I'm going to lose it. And, um, and, and you guide him, you try to guide him. You use, you know, the WSD or the arrow keys to kind of guide him safely through this. And they keep getting bigger. Sorry. And you can't win. And that's the point. That there are hard realities where you cannot win. And yet, how do you hold on to faith in those circumstances? How do you do it? It's, this is great stuff. Anyway, ah, I had so much more I wanted to share with you, but it's 1030, and I need to be respectful of whatever else is coming through. But, um, wow, that's a downer to end on. I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> but, okay, last thing I'm going to say Please, if you have creatives in your church, people who are capable of this kind of powerful planting oases, pray for them, nurture them, go to their studio, figure out what they're about, take them out to lunch, ask them about their process. Artists love talking about process. (laughs) They love it. Um, So that you can pray more intelligently. The church needs people like this. This is where we are. The church, is, the church as church is in a season of dwindling. It just is. But that does not mean that God has stopped working in Britain, in America, throughout the world. So uh, if you want to know more, if you want more examples, books are there or uh, whatever. But... Um, Yeah, thank you for your attention. It's been so lovely spending time with you.